Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Matot, Tribes. The address is Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 30, verse 2, through chapter 32, verse 42. In your English Bibles, it actually starts in chapter 30, verse 1. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 3rd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banumi Kol HaAmin, Venatan Lanu Et Torato. Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah, Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. This is Parashat Matot, and we are just about finished with the book of Numbers. There are only two Torah portions left. In fact, my commentary is only six pages long. It's a very short commentary today. Also, um... Uh, as some of you may or may not know, in Judaism, at times we need to double up on some of the Torah portions according to whether or not it's a leap year or a regular year. And in regular years, we read Parashat Matot uh, with Parashat uh, Masa'e coming up next in um, chapter 33. So they get read together. Matot and Masa'e get read together in regular years, but in leap years we read them separately, okay? From here until the ending of the book of Numbers, to the end of Bar, the subject of tribes is in full view. And Hashem is, um, what he's doing for us is he's preparing the desert-weary people for entering into their long-awaited inheritance you know it's been a long time coming and if you think about it it should not have been isn't this the object lesson for us today God in his mercy and in his grace shows us the way in which to walk and if we would obediently follow his leading then it would not take long for us to walk into the inheritance that he has for us but because of our 
stubbornness, our disobedience, our, our, our willingness to, to argue with God and say that we've got to have it our own way, our lack of faith, call it whatever you want. Because of those factors, we end up going the long way around. And if we've got a call on our life, it doesn't matter. We're still going to reach the destination because God has promised to, to give us those things, which, he, which is, well, it's part of the promise package. Um, there are certain parts of the Torah that once you have accepted faith in Yeshua, then you're going to get them no matter what. They're part of the promise package. And God's going to make sure that that's going to come about. However, there are different paths that we can take to get to that same promised land. We can either go the short route, which if we can use Israel as our example, should have only taken them about 11 or 12 days to go from Egypt into the promised land. But because of their stubbornness and their rebellion and their insistence that God was not going to make good on his promises, what happened? They ended up wandering around the desert for 38 plus years. We usually say 40 years. So God wanted them to understand this very basic principle. If you do it my way, you can go in easily. I'm going to fight your battles. I'm going to be there for you. I'm not going to make a promise that I'm not going to uh, be there with you during the journey. You know, life is a journey. And not only are the promises um, true, but God has promised he's going to be with us every step of the way. So after 40 years of wandering under the divine judging hand of the Almighty, coupled with over 400 years in physical, mental, and in every way spiritual bondage in a foreign land, the descendants of Avraham are finally ready to have a land of their own. And that was the promise. And there was nothing that was going to thwart those plans even the disobedience of Israel herself. No, God made a promise to Avraham long time ago, way back in Genesis chapter 12. And God was going to make good on his part. There's nothing that Israel can do to stop the promises from coming true. Why? Because they are promises that are secured not by Israel, but by God himself. He is the guarantor of the promises. Now before the passages that we're going to read about delve into the physical land, the Torah portion addresses the vow. That's the first few verses in chapter 30, the vow. In Hebrew we say neder. Uh, we also talk in this chapter about the oath, the shvuah. And so this is where I want to make some observations uh, briefly. Let's talk about the neder and the shvuah. I will comment on the land in the final parasha called Masa'e, which is called Stages. Masa'e is Stages. Okay, we'll get to that later on. We're going to talk about the land. But for now, let's talk about our words. Let's talk about promises. What is it about the things that we say, the promises that we make, that are so important to our community life and to God's uh, uh, interaction with us? You know, the spoken word can be powerful, especially if you're talking about God, right? I mean, in the case of the creation account, the Holy One, blessed be He, spoke the very universe into existence. That's a powerful word. I mean, we're talking about the God of all, of all creation, and He merely spoke. It's no reason why the ancients, the Hebrews of old, the sages of old, look at the alphabet 
um, you know, the 22 letters of which Hebrew is, is uh, composed. They look at the Aleph bet as the building blocks of the universe. It's not too far from the truth in their midrash there. And for instance, we go back to, um, to Genesis and we see this familiar phrase, quote, and God said, you know, dot, 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 fill in the blanks, and God said. This, this phrase is found numerous times in, in Breshit chapter 1. And what it does is it emphasizes the importance of spoken words, especially God's word. Now, in this particular case, again, we don't have to remind ourselves, nothing is more powerful than the spoken word of Adonai or the written word of Adonai Tzfai with the Lord of all hosts. He is the creator, and by his word, the universe came into being. Now, the rabbis, let's talk about them for a split second again. The rabbis teach that man, as the created image, the Hebrew word for image is tselem, the, the image of Hashem, since we are the photocopy, the modern Hebrew word tselem means photocopy, since we are created in the image of God, we also have incredible power in our speech. Okay? The Torah also teaches on this power that resides within the tongue of a man. And in truth, the scriptures are replete with verses about the tongue of a man. So I really don't have to be, I, I really shouldn't have to teach this lesson. But since we're talking about the vows and the oaths that we take, we need to familiarize ourselves with, with the power of what comes out of our mouths. So what I want to do is, I want to single out two of my favorite passages. One of them comes from the Tanakh, the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms. And then the other one comes from the Apostolic Scriptures, um, excuse me, the Apostolic Scriptures, uh, the New Testament book of James. So let's start in the book of Psalms. In um, Psalm chapter 34, verse 12, which in your English version shows up at 11, going through verse 15, but in your English version it goes through 14, we read this, quote, Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Adonai. Which of you takes pleasure in living? Who wants a long life to see good things? If you do, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceiving talk. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace. Go after it. End quote. Great words for us to live by. There's, there's a lesson that the psalmist is trying to challenge us with. Who wants a long life to see good things? You know, you could even ask unbelievers these days, do you want a long life? Do you want to see good things? I think these principles go a long way to teach us uh, what we need to do in order to enjoy a happy life while we're here on this earth that uh, God has created for us. And what does this almost tell us? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceiving talk. The power of speech. It can tear a person down. It can eat away at a person. It can destroy his life, his family, his community. The tongue is a powerful thing. Let's look at another passage here. This is from the Brit Chadashah, the Renewed Covenant, the Apostolic Scriptures, in essence, the New Testament. This is a little bit longer, okay? This one's a little more familiar to, um, to most of us who've grown up in church circles. Um, this one comes from the book of James, or its Hebrew title is Yaakov, and it is in chapter 3, and I want to read all of the first 12 verses out of New American Standard Version, okay? Um, quote, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, 
he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. If we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. End quote. Again, powerful lessons for us today as we study these first few verses in Parashat Matot, which have to do with the vow and the oaths that we take. These are the building blocks of the very communities that we live in, the things that we say, the things that issue forth from our mouth. And in the James passage, it's not just talking about oaths and vows. It's merely talking about the things we say, the speech, the, 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 very, the very words that we deliver to those around us. Are we blessing them or are we tearing them down? There's the challenge. And so how can we say that the Torah is not relevant for our lives? The Torah gives us the blueprint to understand that our words are powerful. And in the Torah portion, it talks about how the vows that people take uh, in fact, let me just go to my commentary. Here in our Torah portion, Moshe gives instructions from the tongue of Hashem, no pun intended, as to what certain vows and oaths entail. See, the Torah portion gives us the impetus to understand the, 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 uh, uh, the weight of what the book of James was talking about. Now, I won't go into the details of each vow here in the portion, but I will make a correction today to a common misunderstanding related to these passages and to vows and to um, oaths that we take, okay? Again, it is important for us to understand that speech is not merely idle chatter. It's not merely idle talk. The words that leave our mouths cannot be easily retracted. And that's why James starts off his, his didactic teaching with the phrase, let not many of you become teachers knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. You know what? I can relate to this personally. You know why? I'm a Torah teacher. That's right. I study the Torah, and it's my function in the community to take that which God shows me and to, to internalize it, to break it apart, and to give it back to the Talmudim, to the students that God has entrusted to my care. And so as I speak and demonstrate words of Torah, I am going to be held accountable for that which leaves my mouth. I've got to be careful what I say and to whom I say it. You know, I have a challenge 
that 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 pre- that's presented before me every time I open up my mouth before a crowd to speak. And you know what that challenge is? Should I say what God is placing in my heart? Should I water it down? Should I should I manipulate the information so that it comes out um, sounding good versus if 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 God is given to me and it sounds rather harsh and I want to smooth out the words? Or should I make it rough sounding when God has given it to me smooth because I'm in a bad mood? The things that God lays on my heart to give to students, to give to other people, I've got to be very careful with how I deliver that to them because the book of James tells me that I will incur a stricter judgment. The very fact that I'm in leadership and as a teacher demands that I walk a higher standard, especially when it comes to my speech. And so I just want to use this opportunity to say to anyone within the sound of my voice, both local and abroad, people listening to my commentaries on the internet or whether you've sat under my teaching in the local classroom setting at my local shul, if I have said anything to you that has been offensive, then I ask for your forgiveness because I don't mean to purposely offend people. I don't wish to tear people down. In the words that I use, in the examples that I share, I do not wish to tear down someone who has been created in the image of God. That would be a very, very bad thing for me to do. And so I ask for your forgiveness because I'm not perfect and I do seek to, to, um, uh, to accurately portray that which the, the message that God has laid on my heart. So I ask for your patience and your mercy and your grace as you listen to my commentaries, as you study underneath me. Please be patient with me as well. I'm in the learning process as well and... Um, I just, I just know that, that, that if I continue to press into God's spirit, that he will continue to use me and to allow me to teach and uh, to say words of truth. And so thank you for allowing me this opportunity to share with you. You know, in the Torah portion, here in uh, Numbers chapter 30, Moshe clearly allows for vows and oaths to be taken by individuals. That's what the Torah portion is about. Now, I understand that we have the if-then language showing up. For instance, it says, if you make a vow, blah, 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 then here is what is to happen, blah, 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 and the details follow. The idea is that, that Moshe is not commanding the people to take vows. You understand what I'm saying? He is allowing people to take vows. If you take a vow, it's voluntary. This, by the way, also includes by context the familiar Nazarite vow spoken of at other places in the Torah. The vow that the Nazir takes is voluntary. It is not a commanded vow. But in our misunderstanding of Torah concepts, especially within 21st century church circles, we sometimes see a contradiction of this passage here in our Torah with a well-known phrase spoken by Yeshua in the Chadashah, in the Apostolic Scripture. So let's turn to our passage in question. It's taken from the book of Matthew, or Matityahu, chapter 5, verses 31 through 37. And what it is, it's the setting of Yeshua's own halacha, his manner of Torah interpretation, involving practical application. And um, this is, of course, within the context of sermon that's been labeled the Beatitudes. All right, so let's look at this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30 through 37. I want to read from the Darby version for a moment, and then we're going to go and uh, look at his statement. Okay, quote, 
This is Yeshua speaking. Again ye have heard that it has been said to the ancients, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt render to the Lord what thou hast sworn. But I say unto you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, uh, neither by the heaven, because it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, because it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your word be yea, yea, nay, nay. But what is more than these is from evil. End quote. Did you catch the challenge yet? Well, let me explain. From a cursory reading of Yeshua's statement, he appears to be contradicting what Moshe has been teaching the people all along. Here Moshe comes along and says, if you take a vow, like for instance, let's look at the, the first Pasuk of our parasha. It reads, quote, then Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel. He said, here's what Adonai has ordered. When a man makes a vow to Adonai or formally obligates himself by swearing an oath, he is not to break his word, but is to do everything he has said he will do. End quote. That's the first few pasukim of our parasha. But then we couple that or compare that to Yeshua's statement where he says, But I say unto you, do not swear at all. On a cursory glance, it seems like Yeshua is contradicting Moshe. It seems like Yeshua is saying, don't even swear at all, where Moshe is saying, if you swear, here's, what, here's the rules you're to follow. In fact, to strengthen this posit, let's just imagine for a moment that Yeshua is uprooting Moshe. Yeshua's cryptic statement where he says, you have heard it said, dot, dot, dot. You know, throughout the entire Beatitudes, he keeps saying to these people, you have heard it said. And, and then he says, but I tell you, blah, blah, blah. From a cursory glance, it seems like Yeshua's halakha is um, trying to counter some sort of false teaching. Or it seems like Yeshua is saying, you know, the Torah says such and such, but I'm telling you such and such. Y you're following me so far? I've heard this, um, this, this uh, um, line of reasoning presented in, in more than one church. So I, I, I know I'm not the only one who's heard this before. In, in other words, the, the standard Christian theological position that teaches that the law has been done away with in Jesus would find such a, uh, a warrant in these particular verses. Obviously, Yeshua is counteracting something, and so when he says, you have heard it said, the said must be referring to the Torah, right? But I tell you, and, and the, the use of the, of the Greek de, uh, um, but, seems to be wielded by Yeshua as a contradiction. In other words, Moshe said thus and such, but I tell you thus and such. Okay? That's what it seems like Yeshua is saying. All the way through chapter 5 of Matthew, Yeshua keeps using this formula. You've heard it said, blah, 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 but I tell you, blah, blah, blah. It's as if the people have heard the Torah of Moshe for thousands of years, and now Yeshua is going to come along and change all of that. However, let's go back to my commentary. We're in the middle of page 3. A proper hermeneutic, now remind yourselves, a hermeneutic is a biblical interpretive viewpoint. It's kind of like a bias, but it's a necessary bias, okay? A hermeneutic is the lens in which you view the Torah itself. Um, and, and it's necessarily built into the Torah. The Torah has its own built-in hermeneutic principles that we need to discover before we can begin to fully uh, comprehend what the Torah is teaching, okay? This, this, was, this is true from Genesis to maps, okay? The entire Bible has a built-in hermeneutic. Well, one of the most important
important biblical hermeneutic principle starts with this all-important truth. What is it? It's bolded in my commentary. Listen up. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. Period. Put that in your mind and lock it down. Don't ever let go of that hermeneutic principle, people. Whether you're Jewish or Christian or whatever, Scripture can't contradict itself. You know why? Because there's only one author of Scripture. There's simply no way to correctly harmonize the text if we allow for one passage to contradict another. God is the author of all Scripture. Now, details can change. You know, in one passage we might find uh, uh, David um, counting out 50, anim- 50 sheep, and in the next passage he counts out 100 sheep. Now, those are just details, but Scripture can't contradict Scripture. So the hermeneutic is going to remain uh, uh, the same, okay? We've got to get that in our head. In one particular example here in Matthew, Yeshua clearly states that we should not swear at all. What's he really saying? Well, his teaching is an admonition to uphold the validity of one's word even to the simple form of a yes or a no. That's how we've got to understand his saying. If we if we come to a hermeneutic that has Yeshua uprooting a Torah principle, then what we have really done is we have invalidated his possibility of being the genuine Messiah. Because the Messiah cannot contradict Scripture. The Messiah cannot invalidate Moshe. Now this is made clear, this, that, that, that it's um, Yeshua's answer is uh, talking about the yes or no. This is made clear by his closing remarks to his listening audience in Pasuk 37 and verse 37. In other words, far from abolishing the importance or application of oaths and vows as is spelled out at the Torah passage in our in our Torah portion, Yeshua is actually strengthening the bond that goes into effect once a person places himself under such obligations. You see the big difference? To be sure, his halakha centers on the fact that a simple yes or no actually carries the same weight as a more complicated vow or oath. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I tell my wife that I'm going to take out the trash tomorrow. Okay, it's it's nighttime now and I'm tired, and I say when I wake up in the morning I'll take out the trash. Okay, if she says, "Are you really going to do it?" and I look at her and I say, "I promise I will do it. I swear that I will do it." Well, then to, when tomorrow comes, because I've taken an oath, I've 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 sworn that I will do it. I really need to follow through with my oath with with what I promised to do. Correct? Everyone understands that 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 uh, example there. Well, but what Yeshua is saying is, going. let's just rewind the example. What Yeshua is saying is, if in the same scenario my wife says, Ariel, are you going to take out the trash tomorrow? If I look at her and just simply say, yes, I'll do it, but I don't promise, and then when the morning comes and she sees the trash sitting there, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm off doing something else. And she says, Ariel, you said you'd take out the trash. And I look at her and I say, but I didn't promise I'd take it out. You see how I'm... I'm I'm violating the Torah principle just because I didn't use the language of a vow or an oath. I supposedly think that it's okay to get away with not following through with my word. But what Yeshua is challenging us today is that our simple yes or our simple no should carry the same weight as if we did take a vow. In other words, follow through with that what you're going to do. The power of the spoken word. The power of, of speech. Um, the importance of, of what comes out of our mouth. God doesn't want us to simply make um, 
irrational statements or, or flippant statements or, or just uh, uh, make uh, empty promises to the people in our community. It would tear down the community in which we are a part. So again, a simple yes or no actually carries the same weight as a more complicated vow or an oath. Now to make this explanation more clear, we must understand his statement, quote, do not swear at all. See how he says do not swear at all in that passage? That is to be a prohibition not against taking vows or oaths, but a prohibition against perjuring oneself. Again, um, the example that I give shows that we are to not take vows or oaths lightly or in vanity. So I take an oath as if it supposedly secures the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the absolute surety that I'm going to do something. And then when the time comes to fulfill the oath or the vow, I don't follow through and I make up some kind of nonsense, some kind of excuse. Well, what it happens is I've just perjured myself. I've, I've, I've put myself in a position where my words can't be trusted at all. It would be better if I had simply said yes or no. And then if circumstances arise where uh, I cannot follow through, well then perhaps maybe my community might um, be a, a bit more understanding of uh, the, the uh, circumstances that arise that might prevent me from following through with something where I simply said, yes, I'll do it or no, I'll do it. For instance, let's go back to the example of the trash. Let's say, suppose my wife says, Ariel, will you take out the trash tomorrow morning? I say, yes, I will. And then tomorrow morning comes, the first thing that happens when, in the morning is that I get an emergency phone call from another family member and I need to rush uh, off to someone's house to, to go pray for someone or to, to, to take someone to the hospital or something like that. And so um, I rush off to the hospital or I rush off to a family member's house to take care of this emergency. Well, then if I don't take out the trash, my wife might be more understanding because I simply said, yes, I will. And then when I get back, she'll, she'll understand. I, at least I, 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 in my example, um, I'm uh, hoping she'd understand more uh, why I didn't take the trash out right away. Do, do you guys see my point? Do not make oaths or vows lightly or in vanity. If you swear to something, see to it that you carry out your word. That's what Moshe is saying, and that's what Yeshua is also saying. Even to the simple form of your common everyday yes and no, we should be following through with the things that we promise to do or the things that we say we're going to do. And this is the heart of Yeshua's teaching here, which strongly upholds the truest intent of what Moshe was also teaching in the Torah. So now, now that we have um, given this example, we can see that the Messiah upholds the Torah of Moshe. And only a cursory glance of re reading Yeshua's words where he says, do not swear at all, is not uprooting what the Messiah has, or uh, not uprooting what Moshe has already laid down. Which one of you married couples did not undertake an exchanging of vows to be with your spouse? Do you remember when you stood at the altar? Some of you who had Western weddings or where, weddings where you stood in front of a preacher or in front of a magistrate or something to that effect. And those are vows, right? We call them wedding vows. Who among you has been called to the witness stand of a courtroom and not made to swear to tell the truth? This is another place where um, you, you, you have to take an oath. Um, next month I've got jury duty. And uh, guess what? I, I believe they're probably going to make me promise to, to, to uh, be truthful in the things that I see and the things that I tell. So we see that um, these, these are examples in life where we take oaths and we take vows in, in everyday situations. And yet, if Yeshua's words are to be taken at face value where he says, do not swear at all, 
do not take oaths, as it were, well then, do we see these examples, just these two that I gave you, where the wedding vow and the, the, the oath that you're taking in court, do we see these as violations of Yeshua's halakha? Of course not. We begin to see the greater context of what Yeshua is talking about and the context of what Moshe has handed down. Obviously, the wedding vow and the courtroom oath are taken in truthfulness with every intent to follow through with our testimony that's given, correct? This is exactly what Yeshua is teaching here. He wanted to contradict the rampant practice of swearing falsely or flippantly, which was not only um, rampant in his day, but you know what? It's rampant in our day as well. People just don't keep their promises. Let's turn to the Talmud to see if there is any correlation between what the Master said and with what perhaps was circulating among the Judaisms of his day. Remember, the Talmud records the words of many of the sages of, of the first century. And later on, as we read through the Talmud, we're going to find things that Yeshua taught are very much in line with things that the Talmud has recorded for us as being um, circulating as, as wise statements or, or um, uh, teachings uh, that were being used in first century. Let's turn to... Um, the tractate in the Mishnah known as Pirkei Avot, which is Sayings of the Fathers, all right? It, it actually seems to back up Yeshua's statement. In Pirkei Avot um, 1, 17, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, that is, uh, we read, quote, In the Mishnah, Shimon, the son of Rabban Gamliel, said, quote, All of my days, excuse me, all of my days I was raised amongst the sages, and I didn't find anything better for the body than silence, end quote. What does this statement of Shimon's mean? What, 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 what does he mean, nothing's better for the body than silence? Well, actually, in agreement with Yeshua, what, the, what Shimon's trying to say is that it is better to say nothing at all than to swear and promise false words. And if we go back and look at what Yeshua said, um, let your words be yea, yea, or nay, nay, but what is more than these is from evil. In other words, it, it, you know what? If you can't keep your word, then just shut up. Don't say anything at all. Don't swear at all. Don't even say yes or no. If someone says, "Can you do this?" Then, then, then you know, don't, don't, don't say you're going to do it, or don't say you can't do it. Because the minute the word leaves your mouth and you fall, uh, you, you uh, don't follow through with what you've said. Well, then you've made yourself out to be a liar anyway, and it's better if you just didn't say anything at all. <laughs> okay. I want to uh, move on now from vowels, but not from the topic of the tongue. I want to move on from vowels. And uh, since this is just a really short commentary day, I want to close by sharing an interesting story that's also found in the Talmud. Now, the story revolves around the power of the spoken word and what comes about when we fail to give a good word of testimony to one who really needs to hear it. We've been talking about this topic of how what we say affects everyone around us. You know, there's a story. I don't remember where I've picked it up. I, I, it might be a rabbinic story. I can't remember. It, 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 it doesn't really matter. But it talks about how that when people, and I'm not talking about gossip today, but I just want to throw this out here since we're just talking about, you know, people talking about other people. It, it, the, the story is told of, of uh, about Lashon Hara, which is um, evil speech. And we, we, we kind of um, loosely interpret this phrase Lashon Hara as gossip in Jewish terms. And in Lashon Hara, in gossip, what ends up happening is that, let's say you have two people sitting around talking about a third person. You have person A, person B, talking about person C. 
I think it is a rabbinic story. What the rabbis recognize is that when, when two people commit Lashon Hara, then three people are destroyed. The person telling the story, the person giving the gossip, he's destroyed. The person receiving the gossip, he's also destroyed. And yet, finally, and most importantly, the person being spoken about is destroyed as well. Everyone is destroyed when evil speech is, is, is practiced. And so, the power of what we say can effectively build up our community or it can effectively destroy our community. And that's why we have to go back and look at the passage that I read earlier from the book of Yaakov. You know, uh, what does it say? Um, uh, the, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among, set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue can destroy people. No one can tame the tongue. It's restless evil and full of deadly poison. What we say is so vitally important to building up relationships or tearing them down. And you know what? I'm all for building up relationships. Start with your own uh, closest relationships. The community that you're a part of. The family that you've been raised in. If you're married, this starts with your spouse. Actually, truly it starts with God. Even though most of us, when we speak to God, um, some of us pray audibly when we talk to God. We pray out loud. Others pray in our hearts silently. Some of us journal. Um, excuse me. Some of us journal when we talk to God. Whatever be the case, you certainly wouldn't find yourself tearing down God with your speech, would you? Gosh, I hope not. But then the next thing we do is we turn around to our spouses, our husbands, and our wives, and we lay into them like there's no tomorrow, and we don't even think about the things that we say. There are multiple reasons why we should not uh, use bad speech when it comes to uh, uh, speaking to our spouses. You know, the things that you say, the conversations that you have, the attitudes that you approach your conversation topics with can vitally, um, can, can vitally change the, the course of, of the outcome of the conversation. If you enter into your conversation with, with, with hurt and with violence and with, with, with bitterness, um, it, it, it can tear down the other person. And it's no wonder that uh, we fight so much as husbands and wives amongst each other. It's the attitudes that we carry and the things that we say. And so uh, I'm, I'm very much uh, in favor of, of uh, changing the way we say and the way, the way we talk and the way we think. So let's go back to my commentary here. There's a story in the Talmud, and the story may or may not be factual, but that's not the point. What happens with the story is that the sages were intending to convey a particular message through the medium fable and folklore, which is agotic stories, you know, stories that, again, may or may not be true, but uh, every community has their fables and their folklore. And the, the fables and the folklore are usually intended to convey some type of lesson to those who remember the stories, that whether or not the stories are factual or not, that's not the point. And so to this end, the intended lesson would be preserved from generation to generation as the story gets passed along. You know how that works? Well, the concept explained here as, as enumerated by Rabbi Yisrael Siner of Project Genesis, uh, Torah on the Information Superhighway, which you can access, by the way, at www.torah.org. And uh, the, the, the concept here is that each of us has within the very mouth that Hashem gave unto us, quote-unquote, the opportunity to lift the earth up to the heavens, end quote. So, I'm going to close with this story. It's about 
two or three pages long. And um, and then after I tell the story, I'll just give one final concluding remark, and then we'll close the Torah portion. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The story is told that when the Baal, and by the way, the, the, the Baal Shem Tov is the leader of a sect of Jews bearing the title Master of the Good Name. The word Baal there is simply an Aramaic word which means master. Or I, I, I think it's a Hebrew word as well, but um, I, I think it has cognates in both languages. But at any rate, the word Baal, which is spelled B-A-A-L, and some English readers would read it as Baal. This word is not to be confused with the false god Baal. That's, that's, that's also B-A-A-L, but um, Baal is not to be confused. Anyway, the word Baal simply means master. Um, just like the word Adonai simply means Lord, and it can refer to God, or, or, or it can refer to a heavenly being or an earthly being when we say Lord, as well as the word El can mean God in the truest sense of the word, uh, the, the one true and living God, El, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, El, or it can refer to false gods. Elohim can mean other gods. The verse, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. Thou shalt have another Elohim before me. So we've got to understand context when we see these words. But anyway, back to the story. The story is told that when the Baal Shem Tov um, was getting ready to leave this world, that is to say he was ready to die, he summoned his close disciples, revealing to each one the mission they were to meant to fulfill. One student by the name of Rav Chaim was told that he would earn his livelihood by passing from town to town and relating stories of the Baal Shem Tov. Okay? A bit taken aback. He nervously asked how long he, he'd need to travel around telling stories. He asks his master, quote, you, uh, and, and the Baal Shem Tov tells him, quote, you'll be shown a sign from heaven, and you will know that the time has arrived that you may stop, end quote. The Baal Shem Tov responded. And so it was, after the Baal Shem Tov passed away, that Rav Chaim packed his bags and began to travel, spreading the stories of his Rebbe, his master teacher, wherever he went. It came about that uh, Rav Chaim heard of a very wealthy man named Reuven, Reuben, who was willing to pay handsomely to hear any stories about the Baal Shem Tov. Well, Rav Chaim went to his house and told him that he knew a wealth of stories and that he'd be happy to share with him. So, filled with anticipation, Reuben invited many guests for a beautiful warm Shabbos Sabbath filled with inspiring stories about the Baal Shem Tov. After a lavish meal, Reuven and all his guests turned excitedly to Rav Chaim, waiting to hear some of his stories. Rav Chaim was about to begin when, to his horror, he realized that his mind had seemingly gone blank. He could not remember a single episode involving his Rebbe. With his face a bright red color, everyone's watching, you understand, he explained that he was that, that he was exhausted from traveling and assured the guests that after a good night's sleep he would entertain them with stories the next day. So they all agreed. And after the Shabbos afternoon meal, however, you know, he slept and, 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 and woke up again. After the Shabbos uh, afternoon meal, however, the same thing occurred. Rav Chaim was stupefied. He was unable to understand or believe what was happening? I mean, he had all these stories in his head, and he couldn't remember anything. Once again, he apologized and asked to be given another chance at the third meal. So, as you can imagine, the third meal came and went, with Rav Chaim still drawing blanks. Here are these people waiting 
to hear some stories about his Rebbe, and he can't remember a thing. So after Shabbos, the, point, the disappointed guests left, and Rav Chaim apologized to his crestfallen host. He had already ascended onto his wagon to leave, because he was, he was just he was defeated. He bowed his head. He was going to leave. When suddenly, as with a flash of lightning, one story returned to his mind. So he excitedly ran to Reuven to tell him that he had just remembered a story. Okay, here's the story. One day, I accompanied the Baal Shem Tov to a town for Shabos. This is the Chaim, Rav Chaim, explaining this to Reuven. When we arrived on Thursday and were surprised to find the town market empty and desolate, we knocked on the first door that we found with the mezuzah on it and were frantically pulled inside. Don't you know what day it is today? Don't you know it's Greena Dornshag, which is Green Thursday? And uh, the anti-Semitic priest riles up his congregants and then sends them out on a pogrom. This is what the uh, person told uh, Rav uh, Chaim and the uh, Baal Shem Tov, um, as they uh, were pulled into this doorway. My Rebbe turned to me, Rav Chaim continued, and sent me to tell the priest that Rav Yisroel Baal Shem Tov wanted to see him. The people begged him not to send me to what they saw as a certain death, but he insisted that I do as he had said. Trembling, I approached the priest as he was delivering his fiery speech to a large mob and gave him the message. He appeared frightened and told me to tell the Baal Shem Tov that he'll come after his speech. Happy to be alive, this is still Rab Chaim uh, explaining his story. Happy to be alive, I delivered his message back to the Baal Shem Tov. Tell him he must come immediately, the Baal Shem Tov told me, sending me back a second time. So, you understand the story now? The Baal Shem Tov, the master, is telling his student, Rav Chaim, to go tell this priest who's about to deliver a, a, a speech in which there's going to be an anti-Semitic pogrom. And, and a pogrom, a pogrom or pogrom, is where a, a demonstration would take place among the Jewish people, usually at the hands of the magistrates of the town that the Jewish people were um, uh, members of. And they would kind of maybe kind of either get whipped or they would, they would get, uh, there would be some public um, uh, public, uh, what do you call, damage done to Jewish homes, some public uh, desecration or vandalism, just to, just, just to kind of show the Jewish people, uh, put them in their place from time to time, okay? If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, then you'll understand what a pogrom is. Anyway, happy to be alive. Let me back up a little bit. Happy to be alive. Um, I, Rav Chaim, delivered his message back to the Baal Shem Tov. Tell him he must come immediately, the Baal Shem Tov told me, sending me back a second time. This time, the priest excused himself, explaining that he'd return in a few minutes, and he accompanied me back to the Baal Shem Tov. The two were together in a room for a while. My story ends here because I don't know what they discussed or what happened to the priest afterwards. This is the end of Rav Chaim's message. Looking shaken, Reuven told Rav Chaim, I now have a story to tell you. You don't recognize me? I am that priest. The church kidnapped me when I was young, and they succeeded in purging any memories of my life as a Jew. And the priest goes on to say, which is Reuven, I grew older and became a member of the clergy and eventually became a priest of the entire area. However, I was disturbed by a recurring dream, dream where the Baal Shem Tov would appear, tell me that I'm Jewish, and warn me to return to my true religion. The priest goes on to say, I ignored those crazy dreams and continued with my holy work. However, 
on that Green Dornstag, uh, Dornstag, which is Green Thursday, when you appeared with the Baal Shem Tov's message, I felt that I must comply. And then this priest, Ruven, goes on to continue. When the Baal Shem Tov spoke to me and told me who I really was and where my responsibilities lied, I decided to leave the church and return to my religion. The Baal Shem Tov told me that when someone would come and tell me this story, that would be the sign that my teshuvah, my repentance, was accepted. And that is why I was always eager to hear stories about the Baal Shem Tov. And when you came and couldn't remember any stories, I was destroyed. My teshuvah had not yet been accepted. But now your words have told me the decision made in heaven. My atrocities have been forgiven. The end. Isn't that a wonderful story? Again, whether or not it's true is immaterial. But the question I want to leave with you today as I close my commentary is this question. Now what do you suppose would have happened to Reuven, the former priest, if Rav Chaim had not spoken up? We'll leave you with that question, okay? The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vechaye Olam Nata Batochinu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.